0: morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. I'm so excited. Can I just tell you that one of the most exciting things for me is seeing a new believer trusting Christ and following him in baptism. So amen, right? So that's an exciting thing. And, um, and I want you to know what a treasure we have as a city that people from all over the world come to our city to live and to do school, get an education, whether it's undergrad, graduate, terminal degrees like PhDs, and then they go back Um, all around the world to live for God's glory and to make disciples of all nations. And so it's an incredible um, gift that God has given us with international students. So if you're an international student, know that we are so thankful that you are here in this country. You make us better um, as Americans and and the body of Christ specifically. Um, It shows the richness of the treasure that God has given us in Christ that People from every nation, tribe, and tongue coming together to worship, to grow, and to make disciples together. So, if you're an international student, thank you. You are a gift to us. Well, this morning we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. And so, I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to go ahead and let you know that um, Ephesians chapter 4 has so much in it that there was no way in one sermon to like touch it all. And so we are going to come back at another time to verses 1 through 16 because they really put on display the beauty of servant leadership within the body of Christ. And it talks specifically about why different gifts are given. It's one of the most powerful passages about unity. But I think that we're we're grasping that, so that uh, you know it's important to see. I just want you to look real quickly at verse four of chapter four. It says, "There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all." And so I want you to know that that's like a a a centerpiece for the book of Ephesians. But I titled this sermon series, A Unity Like No Other. And the reason I titled it that is because of this passage that really brings everything together. So because of the sermon title, and I think that we've got the essence of where we're headed and how it is that Paul is building this unity in the body, we're going to come back to that um, in 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 a couple of months to look specifically at how the body functions and how leaders function in the body and how it's meant to equip the body and all those kind of things so today We're going to look down beginning at verse 17. But to kind of set things up today, I want to share with you about a coach named John Wooden. Um, Many of you may be familiar with with John Wooden. He he was one of the most celebrated coaches in the history of college basketball. He coached at UCLA um, from 1948 to 1975 is how long he was there. Now, in the strength of his stride, when things were at their best, he led his team to 10 national championships in the span of 12 years which is just unbelievable. And during that same 12-year period, his team experienced 88 consecutive wins, which is, again, just kind of mind-blowing. But in one of the many books about John Wooden, author Steve Jamison notes that what was significant in Coach Wooden's life was a a, a card that his dad gave him upon leaving to go to college. Um, His dad wrote him a note, but then on the back of that note card, he wrote seven rules for life, a list of seven rules that had been adapted from a seven-point creed from John H. Clark, who was a former Supreme Court justice. Now the simplicity of the list was part of the power of the list, because John Wooden could easily commit this little list to, to memory. And the, the order of those seven points are as follows, I'm just going to share them with you. Number one, be true to yourself. Number two, make each day your masterpiece. Number three, help others. Number four, drink deeply from good books, especially the Bible. Number five, make friendship a fine art. Number six, build a shelter against a rainy day. And number seven, pray for guidance and count and give thanks for your blessings every day. So there's simplicity in the list, but John Wooden, out of all the lists that could have been you know, uh, access during those days, this one was different. And the reason that, the, that those little seven rules had such an impact on this man who went on to become such a prominent leader in college sports was first of all, this list was from his father. His dad took time to write this down on a card and give it to him. And so even though it had been adapted from another list, his dad had kind of made it his own. Um, the, the, the original list said, drink deeply of good books. And his dad added, "comma especially the Bible, because he was a Christian. And so he kind of made it his own. But his dad had taken time to write it down and give it to his son. And that was part of the impact. Second, the list is concise. It fit neatly on a, on, a, on, a, on a note card. And so he carried it around for a while until he had it committed to memory. The list was profound but simple. And as such, it was easily committed to memory and thus lived. John Wooden, in many ways, built his life on this list of seven rules from his dad. This list was his foundation for living life the way that he did. Now, as we turn to Ephesians chapter 4, we, the children of God, receive a list from our Father in heaven. A list that is so concise and powerful that if lived in the power of the Holy Spirit truly represents what could be called the good life. Now let me say again that I plan to return to verses 1-16 through but today I want to invite you to stand as we hear a letter written to us from our Father from Ephesians chapter 4 Beginning in verse 17, hear the word of the Lord, your father, written to you, his children. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They, they became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that's not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, "...to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to, the, to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his own neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity." Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he has to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption Let all bitterness, anger and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Therefore be imitators of God, as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking is not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this, every sexual immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that in your love you have written to us in your word a clear, concise way of life that has a foundation, that has clarity in what it looks like, what we're to be doing. And Father, that in your grace you bring us back again and again in your word to these anchor points. So God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, whom we desire not to grieve, Would you please conform us into the image of Christ today through your word? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Today we're going to move through these points. And what I want us to see first and foremost is this. We have a foundation like no other where we see this foundation built, okay, is right here toward the end of the list. Now the reality is that chapters one, two, and three have preceded chapter four. And so Paul has been laying a foundation this entire time. He laid the foundation very clearly back in chapter two, where he spoke about this former way of life that we used to live and how now in Christ, there's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We've been raised with Christ, we're a new creation. We're seated with him in the heavenly places. All of these truths are true of us in Christ. And so now he's moving on to what might be called application. You know, that's an important part about us being hearers of the word, which is important for us to be. Because Paul even assumes this in verse 21. He says, assuming you heard about him. So we are, as James says, to be hearers of the word. But then James rightly cautions us, but not simply hearers. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And so Paul, in the same fashion, is bringing them from hearing the good news of the gospel to living the good news of the gospel. And so that's where we find ourselves today in chapter 4, is that we are called, this is a living passage, a Christian living passage. But the first thing that we see is that we have a foundation like no other. We see it in verse 32. Look with me there at chapter 4. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. So those are the calls, you know, some of the calls that he's calling us to live. But look at the foundation. Just as God also forgave you in Christ. Notice how he doesn't give us another foundation. The foundation for Christian living is Christ. The foundation for right living is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's good news for us because it's simple, but it's also profoundly frustrating at times because we like to think we can move on from simple things like the gospel into these deeper things. But the reality for us is that to move deeper is just to stand firmer in this life on Christ. And so that's exactly what Paul does. He says, I want you to move into maturity, which is a firmer stance in Christ. We're going to see that in chapter 6 where he says, stand firm. Stand firm. And then keep going. Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love. And here's another part of the foundation. As Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us. A sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. You see, when Paul says walk in love, that could really be the banner over everything else that he says here in chapter 4. Everything else that we said. When he calls us not to lie to one another, he's saying love one another. Speak the truth. Speak the truth to your neighbor. He's laying this foundation. He's coming back and saying, remember guys, the foundation of our life is that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It's that same language that he's going to use later in chapter 5. When we look at, he says, husbands and wives, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what does he say? And gave himself up for her. It's the same language. He's saying this gospel is good enough, it's strong enough, it's deep enough to be the foundation for every aspect of your life every thought you think, every ambition you have, every dollar you're entrusted with, the wife you have, the husband you have, the children you have, everything. This gospel is large enough to build everything on top of. That is the foundation that we have that is unlike any other. But going back... What we see is that he also reminds us, again, here beginning in verse 17, of the rescue that Jesus performed. Remember, Jesus saved us from something. And that's what he reminds us of in verses, starting in verse 17. He says, Therefore I say this and testify to the Lord, you should no longer live as Gentile lives in the futility of their thoughts. They're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous. They gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. You see, he says the same thing back in chapter 2. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of the flesh and thought, and were by nature children of wrath as the others were also. Now, why do you think that Paul has to remind believers, not once back in chapter 2, but now twice in chapter 4, about the former condition in which we used to live? You know, why does he have to keep beating that drum? I believe in part it's because we forget the truth of our former misery, of our former condition, and remember only the pleasure of our former condition. You see, psychologists have spent thousands of hours and hundreds of millions of dollars endeavoring to understand the mind and why it is that people persist in destructive habits. I'm not a psychologist or a licensed counselor so I will not reduce the complexity of mental health and addiction to simplistic anecdotes spoken easily from a pulpit. Instead I will affirm and appreciate that it is that what is now an ocean of research and evidence that confirms, not negates, what Paul twice says, that to live enslaved to desires of the flesh, to live in a darkened understanding, to persist in ignorance, to have a hard and prideful heart, to practice promiscuity and impure actions, is misery on top of misery on top of misery. Every self-help book, the, the, the very profession of counseling, The need for psychology and sociology as well as psychiatry psychiatry, acknowledge this. We need help. They're all saying the same thing. I mean, there's a reason it's self-help. You need help. And they're saying your self needs to help yourself. We need to be enlightened in our ways of thinking. We need better lifestyles. Human thriving is hindered. Something is wrong is what Paul is saying. But where Paul would lose an audience, just as he lost many audiences in his own day, is in this. Identifying the root need in every human heart. And that's what I want us to see secondly. First of all, that we have this foundation that's like no other, which is Jesus Christ himself. But then secondly, we need to be reminded today of this truth in every one of our professions. Because I believe that at at the root of all that we do, I mean, what we spend our lives getting education to do and what we spend our time doing in our jobs, all these things, we're wanting to do good. We're, We're wanting to make a difference. We're wanting to provide for our family. We're wanting to be able to be generous to others. You know, all of these things we're wanting to do good. But what we're not grappling with enough is what is the greatest need of all mankind? What is it that man needs more than anything else in this world? And Scripture makes it plain that the greatest need of every human being is the forgiveness of sin. I I want you to write that down. I want you to ponder that this week. Will you please? I want you to really wrestle with do I believe this? That the greatest need of every human being is the forgiveness of sins. Is that what we really believe? And be honest with yourself. Have intellectual integrity to say you know, I really don't believe this. Or to say, I do, but my life is not in alignment with this truth that I do hold to be true. Paul lays it down as the foundation in chapter 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, who's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he had for us, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Today, serious scholars and researchers become so furious with Christians who seem to say to every form of mental illness, to every form of evil, abuse, and neglect, to every form of counseling, psychology, and psychiatry, you just need Jesus, or just read your Bible and pray more. They become so enraged. And brothers and sisters, we often read such anger as opposition to Christ himself. But I suggest to you today that some of their anger is warranted. We need to train our language in accordance with the Scriptures. The consistent message of God's Word is this. Salvation from sin is the greatest need, not the only need. It's the greatest need of every human being. We are not saying as Christians that people suffering from mental illness don't have an actual biological chemical imbalance. We're not saying that appropriate medications would help, would not help, or that some conditions are are chronic. But we are saying that even if chemical balance is achieved... That even if a cure is realized, that even if proper medications and doses are actualized, the greatest need of that person would still be salvation from sin. We are not saying that people suffering from abuse and neglect don't need rescue, protection, and counseling. But we are saying that even after being rescued, even after finding excellent protection, even after receiving world-class counseling, the greatest need of that person will still be salvation from sin. We're not saying that people steeped in addiction don't need support, that that 12-step programs don't work, or that at times inpatient treatment wouldn't be good for a specific person. But we are saying that even if sobriety is experienced from this point forward, and the treatment facility works and support is given in abundance, the greatest need of that person will still be salvation from sin. That's what the scriptures are teaching. They are not saying that there's no other needs. And brothers and sisters, we don't have to get terminal degrees in social sciences, medical science, or even become licensed counselors in order to hold this true understanding of the greatest need of all humans. But at the same time, we should be humble and wise enough to acknowledge that because of our own ignorance in social sciences, Medical sciences, counseling, that we don't need to dismiss entire disciplines in a thoughtless, ignorant way by saying, well, all you need is Jesus. It sounds like high praise for Jesus. But unfortunately, it's a tool that we use to shut people up and shut people down who are going through things that we've never experienced and we don't understand. Instead, we can say with integrity, I don't understand all that you're going through. But I know this personally, our greatest need is Jesus. Can I pray asking Jesus to give us wisdom and grace for what you're facing? That's that's a way, a way forward, rather than dismissing people left and right. Now, Chad, are you saying that if each of the people in the scenarios that you just kind of gave as examples had found Jesus first, then there wouldn't have been any need for anything else? Well, first of all, the question is speculation, and we're wise not to just speculate. Instead, I want to care, share a case study of firsthand experience. Now, to protect her identity, I'm going to call her Sarah throughout this time. The phone rang one day, and it was Sarah calling the office. I answer, hi, uh, my sister said that I should call you because I'm in a, I'm in a really bad situation, and, um, and I don't know what to do. I'm pregnant with twins, and... Um, and, and I know that I can't keep them because of everything going on in my life, and um, I was about to have another abortion, but, but something stopped me from doing it this time, and um, I'm supposed to have these babies really soon, and, and I don't know what to do, can you help me? That was one of those moments where as a pastor, I'm just kind of in silence for a moment, you know, just taking in the weight of this moment. Now here's what Sarah didn't know that immediately was spinning in my mind. A family in our church, this is over at Edgewater Baptist Church here in town, was eager to grow as a family through adoption. And that, and that we had been praying about which road to take as they were wanting to grow as a family in that specific way. I shared with Sarah that I was so inspired by her courage and willingness to reach out for help and that I was committed to doing all that I could to help. We prayed together and I, and I set to working on making phone calls. I contacted that family in the church that was open to adoption and they were immediately open to this situation. They and another support family, I mean they sprang into action to meet this expectant mother, start the legal work needed for an adoption, walk with this mother all the way up to delivery and birth. After birth, Sarah made the unexpected but courageous decision to keep her two girls. Now obviously, just think about this moment, obviously the families at our church were were heartbroken. Not that this mother decided to keep her girls, but because they had prepared their hearts to be mothers of twins. But this is where the story gets good. Rather than turning away from Sarah, these two families and others in the church wrapped themselves around Sarah and began to do everything needed to care for her as she cared for two baby girls. It was incredible to watch. Sarah had mental health issues. She had economic challenges. She had educational barriers. She had seriously unhealthy relationship with the girl's father. But her greatest need was salvation from her sin. In love, these families in the church arranged for counseling and shared the gospel. In love, these families in the church provided economically and took care of her physical needs and shared the gospel. In love, efforts were made and successfully achieved to connect Sarah with a program to help her get an education, to be taught parenting skills, to find a good job, to continue to work through multiple challenges that come to single parents, and they shared the gospel. Months after the girls were born, Sarah came to the place of realizing her greatest need, was salvation from her sin, and for her greatest need, she trusted that God gave his greatest gift, Jesus, who alone could save her, and save her he did. It was incredible to watch her come to life. I'm I'm sitting here telling you from the bottom of my heart, life appeared in this woman, who faced all of these incredible challenges. A single mother with two girls, twins, infants facing all of these hurdles but all of a sudden there was life in her a love for god that had not been there previously a hope that had not been there previously she began to grow as a sister in christ she began to trust and experience the wisdom of christ the direction of christ the protection of christ the goodness of christ but does that mean that she no longer had mental health challenges no Months after her salvation, as the difficulties of being a single parent mounted, and an effort of the girl's father's parents to gain custody of the girls became intense, Sarah went through a time of deep depression and anxiety. The guilt of her previous abortions was weighing heavy on her. Some of the initial support for Sarah had waned as the months went by. Sarah needed medication to help with the deep bouts of depression and anxiety. But does that mean that Jesus failed? Does that mean that Jesus wasn't enough? No. In fact, listen to this. Sarah gives the credit to Jesus that she turned to a mental health professional rather than to, to alcohol and drugs, which, she had, which had been her former way, her old self. She gives Jesus the credit that she did not commit suicide, which had been her former way of thinking when times got really difficult She gives Jesus the credit for the very things that some might look at and say, well, see, Jesus doesn't work. See, Jesus isn't enough. You see, Jesus is just a crutch. Sarah's life and countless others both reveal and demonstrate that the greatest need of every human being is salvation from sin and how Jesus truly enters into our suffering and saves us. But more than that the cross of Jesus Christ reveals that the greatest need of every human being is salvation from sin because that's why Jesus died. He died to save us, he died to cleanse us, he died that we might live. And it is living Christian living that Paul turns to address. On this foundation that Jesus has saved us on the because of this reality that the greatest need of every human being is salvation from sin that then we jump into verse 20. But that's not how you came to know Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught about him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to, the likeness, to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of truth. If I had to sum up what Paul is saying here, I would say it this way. There is an old self to take off. And there is a new self to put on, but you won't know either without the word. There is an old self to, put, to take off, and there is a new self to put on, but you won't know either without the word. Now, Chad, why do you add without the word right there? Because I wouldn't know there was an old self unless the word told me so. And I wouldn't know there was a new self to put on unless I read it. And then when you begin to look at what Paul does, he's actually quoting Old Testament passages left and right about what Christian living is all about. Paul's doing the very thing that he's encouraging us to do. To be renewed in the spirit of our minds through the word. And to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Now, the old ways here in these next verses are seen in several ways. I just want to walk through some of these kind of quickly and stop at a few of them to consider just how deep it is that Paul calls us to stop lying. So let's look at that one first. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one, to his neighbor, because we're members of one another. So he's speaking to the body, and he's saying there ought to be a way of life that characterizes us. Now, there's the old self to take off, lying. Now, most of you in this room are going to say, oh, I don't lie anymore. Let's try this on. On our phones, leaving now. Anybody? I'm the only one? Okay. Um, I'll be a few minutes late. Um, Sorry I missed your call when I sent you to voicemail. Let's try this at the office. Rather than saying, I forgot, we say, working on that right now. Rather than saying, you know, I'm going to be honest, you're just not good at interpersonal relationship skills. We say, you know, we're restructuring. At home, starting a sentence with, you always or you never. It's not the truth. Telling your kids that you'll do something that you don't do. That's lying. Telling your spouse, I forgot, when really you had no intention of doing the thing they asked for help with. Telling your family, ah, guys, I'm sorry, I've got to work late. When really, you just didn't want to go home. And then to ourselves, you know, this is is the last time I'm going to look at this. I'm not going to let this go too far. I don't have a problem, and, and I really can quit anytime that I want. Or... Yeah, this is this is who I will always be. Or he or she or dad or mom or that employer, they were right about me. They were right about me. You see, we're, we're pretty chronic liars when you start looking at the nuances of what it means to lie. I, that's why I love being a dad in some ways. My kids call me left and right on things that I'm like, you know, I'm like, maybe later. Dad, you're not going to let her watch that later. I'm like, yeah, you're right. You're not going to watch that later. You know, like, and it's, it's just one of those things where I try to buy myself a little piece by kind of, you know, just kind of saying it in gentle terms. It's lying. My kids see it so plainly. But we as adults, we've matured into professional liars. And yet, God's word speaks of lying in unequivocal terms. Revelation eight says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, for sexually immoral, for sorcerers, idolaters. Got a pretty, pretty big list going on there. And then, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I mean, you look at lying in the church. Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, they come and they've sold a piece of land and they bring the money from the cell and they say, man, we're giving everything we got from the cell to the church. But really they weren't. They were holding back some. And what's the consequence of lying to the apostles? Well, the the weight of it was they lied to the Holy Spirit is what Peter says. And both of them fell dead before the apostles and were carried out. Speaking about the devil, Jesus says of him in John 8, 45, that when Satan lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The weight of this is that lying is satanic, demonstrating a likeness to Satan, not to Christ. Chad, you're being a little rough. I mean, why are you coming down hard on like small things like text messages that are kind of true? Please hear me. You and I don't have the luxury of looking at life any other way than life or death, light or darkness, truth or false. We think we do, but haven't you seen the news for the last 80 years? All these little lies, they add up to a lifestyle of lying that eventually explodes. I mean, haven't you seen it in a marriage where there's lies that eventually explodes? Haven't you seen it in a child to which parents have been lying and the child has been lying to the parents explode? Haven't you seen it when a job in which you've been lying and falsifying and and, and smudging reports all of a sudden explode? We explode under the weight of these lies and then we step back and we are clueless as to what happened. And yet it's simple. Putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor. I want to challenge you this week to be honest in situations where you would otherwise maybe fudge a little bit. I want you to wait. Just discipline yourself in this simple thing. Wait till you're in your car before you say, I'm on my way. Rather than, I'm going to check a few more emails, but I'm going to go ahead and tell my wife that I'm on my way. And then just say that traffic was a little heavy today. Just little things. You say, Chad, really? I mean, like, we are constantly training ourselves in the little. If we constantly are falsifying things in the little, then when it comes to the big, we've conditioned ourselves. We've trained ourselves for this moment of big to lie. So begin this week. When, when you forgot something that you told a coworker or your wife or whoever that you would do, just say, I forgot and listen, if you lie this week, go back and say, I wasn't completely honest. I, I, I forgot. I am working on it now, but to be honest with you, I forgot about it, but I'm making it a priority right now. Just start in the small, everyday things right now of honoring the Lord in these ways. And I promise you, when the big moments come, I anticipate that you'll speak the truth, each one to his neighbor. You know, keep going through this passage. It says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. The opposite of what, what it, you know, the old self that we're to be putting off is seen in the positive that we're called to in this passage. For example, you know, being angry and sinning. Because he says, be angry and don't sin. So what would be wrong, the old self, is being angry and sinning. What does that include? Well, gosh, just look around. Look in our own city of examples of anger that blow up, road rage. People being shot on the interstates. Violence, slander, hatred, even murder. But then he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So the old self includes letting the sun go down on your anger. People who depended on daylight for a job endeavored to get the job done well before sunset. If you've ever been in that circumstance, like where you're trying to set up camp, if you're out camping or something like that, you want to get it all set up before it gets dark. Because if you're left in the dark to finish up, Or to clean up mistakes happen people get hurt and in many contexts you're vulnerable to attack that's exactly what we see paul saying here essentially saying get it done quickly don't wait till the end of the day and possibly get caught in the dark dealing with that situation over which you're angry if you do you're likely to give the devil the perfect opportunity to ambush you it keeps going Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he's to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Putting off that old self, the thief is to no longer steal. Theft is spoken of in the New Testament in the same serious terms as lying. That a a thief will not inherit the kingdom of God. Like lying, we see stealing in ways we rarely think. We steal productivity from our employer by working on personal plans or having personal conversations for extended periods of time while being paid by our employer to do a job. We steal the thoughts or the work of someone else when we plagiarize, students, when we plagiarize the thoughts and work of another on a paper that we're writing without providing proper footnotes. We steal recognition that belongs to someone else and the hard work that they have done when we accept credit for something we didn't do. We steal joy from our family when we punish them with a bad attitude because we didn't go where I wanted to go for dinner or we're not doing what I want to do this weekend. And so all weekend we punish them with our attitude and we steal the joy that would otherwise be held together. We attempt robbery, listen to this, from God of his glory when we go through this life not giving credit to God for our existence When we take credit for the creation of a baby in the womb, look what I did. When we credit our minds with the intelligence of of what what great parents we are and and how we're passing on that intelligence to, to to our children and all these things, we are stealing from God every day the credit that he rightly deserves and the glory to which he alone is due. The old self is constantly being put aside, and the new self is constantly being called for. The thief is to no longer steal. Instead, he's to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. I mean, think about the beauty of that. Paul doesn't just say, stop stealing. Paul says, stop stealing. Work hard so that you can help others. This, This changes everything. And then he says, no foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. Foul language. Can I just say, hopping down to language, I want you to see where it says in verse 4 of chapter 5, obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. Can we just be honest for a moment and say that among many white Christians racist jokes have been tolerated for years and years and years and that it was never okay. We should have never laughed at a joke made about someone with a different skin color. And obviously that applies to us all, but I think that as we look at today and we, some of the, we see the tensions as, as it relates to racism, there are things that we've tolerated jokes that we've made about driving or about a way of life and all of these things that would be counted as crude joking that are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. So may it be found among us within this body that we do not permit ourselves to speak in such ways and that we ourselves do not entertain such jokes around the the lost and watching world. Paul keeps going. He says, but only what is good for building up someone in need. Notice how in need, in need, keeps popping up. So the one who's been stealing no longer, to be able, but to be able to give to someone, working with his own hands, someone in need. And then he says, what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. But then I want you to see what happens right here in verse 30. And how it is that as we go through this life, we can anticipate the presence of God training us over and over and over again. Look what he says. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You are sealed by him for the day of redemption. Now that one just kind of seems to pop out out of nowhere. It doesn't seem to fit the others. Lying, you know, Rick, I can get. I should stop lying. Stealing, Jack, I can get. I need to stop stealing. You know, not using foul language, Vinny, I can get. I can, I can stop using foul language. But then all of a sudden, stop grieving the Holy Spirit of God. What's grieving the Holy Spirit of God mean? And, and, and how am I doing it? What does that look like? Well, the image that came to me as I was preparing for this sermon was on our way here. We were still in Lake Charles. And... We're going through everything and trying to like get rid of stuff that we don't need that we don't need to be carrying over to new orleans it's that time if you've ever moved of trying to get rid of things and all that stuff and so i'm cleaning out a desk area where i worked and during the beginning phases of the coronavirus i officed in our closet for a little bit i call it my clothis and 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 in there one day, right at the beginning, my son Grayson made me this little craft. Now, my kids love to make crafts. They're, they're k- taking boxes. There's no box. You know, Amazon is the greatest gift to our family. Just the box, um, not what comes in it. You know, they love the boxes. They like making crafts. And Grayson made something for me to put on my desk. And so there at the beginning, I put it up on my desk, and I kept it there. But like so many other things that as we go through as parents and weeks pass by and stuff, we, we get to... All of a sudden, what I saw was you know, that thing again. And I realized that, you know oh man, like, yeah that was thoughtful, he made that. But then I put it in the discard pile. I'm working, and then all of a sudden, I, I come in, and my son comes in, and he's in there kind of watching me work, and then all of a sudden, I see that little thing that he had made over separate. And I said, and all of a sudden, like that, I said, hey bud, Um, did that did that hurt your feelings that I that I was throwing that away? And immediately he was grieved. And and he tried to like kind of hold those emotions or whatever, but he it had hurt him that something that he had made for me, I was just discarding. Brothers and sisters, you've been made new. We've been made new by God. And when we use foul language, when we make or entertain racist jokes, when we lie, when we steal all of these things, the Spirit of God who makes us holy. I mean, think about it. His name is the Holy Spirit. He exists in our life to purify us and to cleanse us. So that when we just cast aside our holiness in order to take on the garments of this world and to put on that old self again, It grieves him and it was the presence of grief in my son that when I saw him grieving it pricked my own conscience immediately there was an awareness of my thoughtlessness of what I had done and that's the power of those words don't grieve the Holy Spirit but know this that when you do God in his grace will prick your conscience because he started something in you and he's going to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Because that's exactly what the word says. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit because you were sealed with him for the day of redemption. The passage goes on and it speaks about other ways that we are to walk and to live our lives. But it ends in this way for know and recognize this every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. This passage, it brings us as a church into an awareness of is my life, is my life revealing that I belong to Christ? Is my life really built on that foundation? Remember, we established the foundation, a foundation unlike any other, that just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a sacrificial sacrifice, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to the Lord, so we are to live our lives in that way. But if we aren't, then what Paul says, it suggests, is that we have not been sealed by the Holy Spirit. What what Paul is saying is it suggests that we still are in the old self. And what we need is salvation that only comes from God. And so that's why I ask you to come back to that point of a central question. Do you believe that the greatest need of every human being is forgiveness of sins? And then let me challenge you to ask it personally in this moment, do you believe that your greatest need is the forgiveness of sins? Do you truly believe that your greatest need in this life is the forgiveness of your sin? If you do and you have, then your life should conform to that, but if for the first time maybe you're seeing that is your greatest need and you've never trusted Christ, then I encourage you, I call you to give your life to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. God, I pray that in this moment, that in this stillness that we would reflect for just a moment on this weighty list that calls us to a Christian life. Remembering We can't live a Christian life without a Christian foundation. Without a foundation, that is Christ and Christ alone. But thank you, God, that in your grace, you called us to put off that old self and to put on the new self. And you've given us your word so we'll know the difference between the two. But, Lord, we can't do this apart from your spirit. So I pray, Lord, for a time of surrender, maybe a time of repentance in this room right now that in ways that we've lied, in ways that we've stolen, in ways that we've had coarse joking, ways that we've spoken harshly Father all these ways Father that if your spirit has pricked our conscience today this will be a time of repentance and faith of turning back to Christ but Lord I pray for the one in this room who right now for the very first time is seeing that the greatest need they have in this life is forgiveness of sins and that you gave Jesus for them. If that's you, during this moment of prayer, every head is is still bowed and people are praying, but if that's you this morning, I want you right where you are just to lift your hand to say, I am realizing for the first time in my life, that's my greatest need. I need the forgiveness of God. I just wanna pray over you in this moment. If that's you, have the courage to lift your hand God I pray over my brothers and sisters in this moment that as we reflect on the goodness of your word God that you would lead us this week in the paths of righteousness for your namesake Lord help us to truly meditate on your word this week considering these different parts of our life and asking God for you to bring us into conformity with your word, the new self that you've created for us to walk in I pray this in Jesus name Amen